So uh, my guest today is Kim Kelly, author of the new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. And Kim also writes for um, the publication with possibly the greatest progressive uh, credentials of all time, Teen Vogue, (laughs) which is a sentence that I'm not sure many of us thought we would be saying, but we've been saying it lately. Kim, uh, I, I... I've got allergies. I think you're a little under the weather, but I'm still going to say, how how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm I'm good. I could I was much worse earlier this week. So honestly, comparatively, I'm pretty okay. It's a it's a beautiful sunny day in Philadelphia, so I can't complain. Okay, um, I'm going to start with just my sense of what this book is and this book is about, and then you can jump in, which is to say. Fight Like Hell, it says the untold history of American labor, and that's really true, and it's true to me in two central ways. Mm. First of all, you're you're doing the work that I think anyone who has a cursory interest in American history has a vague sense, but even someone like me, I mean, my PhD is in American studies, I did not have this depth of knowledge in what unions have done to transform this country. I vaguely knew it was them, but now I've got uh, I've got the receipts as the kids day, as the kids say. See, I'm very hip and with it. <laughs> um, and it's also the untold history in that so many of us, I think, including me, when we think of unions, we think of the AFL CIO, we think of the Teamsters, we think of Jimmy Hoffa and our, our images. Yeah, you said you're in uh, Philly, right? Your, our images. Yeah. Um, Pennsylvania or Ohio and mm. white men, um, maybe maybe uh, men from families that were not considered white in the 19th century, like Polish or Irish, but white men who have grabbed a certain piece of the pie for themselves and then became, you know, sort of corrupt and, and especially if someone like Gompers, just a, kind of a member mm. of the status quo. And this book revealed that while those people certainly existed and were, and were an outsized part of the labor movement, there's so much more to organize labor in this country. And I just loved learning all these stories. So first of all, th- thank you, Kim. Thank you for writing this book. Thanks for reading it and for getting, I guess, for, for getting it, for um, picking up on what I was trying to put down. Um, yeah, I mean... The thing about this history is that it's, of course, it's not untold and that no one's ever told it before. Like the workers told it first, right? Then we had contemporary reporters and and people are paying attention to it that preserved it. And then the archivists and the historians, the researchers, the academics, all these people that put in all this work to make sure these stories were preserved and were written down. But like you said, they're not necessarily that accessible to all of us, right? Like you're not necessarily going to walk into Barnes and Noble and pick up a book that focuses on these specific stories. Like it's probably more likely you'll find it in academic papers, academic presses, which are really important, but again, not the most approachable or accessible resources for workers, for people that are on their way to work, people that are trying to read something on the bus. And I wanted to make, uh, yeah, make this history that does belong to all of us just make it a little bit more accessible and make it seem interesting and dynamic and even fun. Like I wanted this book to be fun to read. I wanted it to be easy to read. I, I split it up into kind of bite-sized pieces just with the idea that people would be able to pick it up when they're on their break or when they get home from work and have a few minutes. Uh, I certainly didn't want people to sit down and read a whole textbook. I will say what you just talked about, Kim, was the kind of the third thing I had on my list to describe the book to someone. And I was going to get to it with my next question, but or not even question, comment, but you've already said it. 
this this book is a is a history book, but it's not a textbook. It is not chronological. I talk a lot about the historian Eric Hobsbawm on this podcast, and it is his books are fantastic. He can tell you like everything that was going on with with politics and how it relates to labor and left wing movements in Europe and the United States over like a 50 year period in 500 pages. But no one's going to read that. <laughs> no one. I mean, I can That's barely a superpower. Yeah. I read through these Hobsbawm books like five pages at a time. And then I put it down for a month so that I can process and look things up. And, <laughs> and this, I mean, I know you've got a background in journalism. It seems to me that these read like journalistic um, articles, like each one of them could have been published as a historical look in a moment in, in something like the Atlantic or, or Teen Vogue or something like that. And I'm guessing that was that was the point. You can imagine reading this like you're reading a magazine and get these untold stories. As, as you say, insofar as these stories are told, even people like me with an academic background in the history of the left don't know them or don't know them with this detail. So they are in that sense completely untold, especially in this format. I mean, that's how I wrote it, right? Because I am a journalist. I, I didn't even finish college. So I don't know how y'all do what you do, but God bless you for doing it. Um, but yeah, that's how I wrote it. Um, I kind of, and I, even when it was in the process, the way that I turned it in, I didn't turn in one big manuscript at the end. I would file chapters to my editor as I finished them. So it was kind of just, yeah, like every story, like I, I hope that they could stand alone. But I also tried to show how these different eras and people and movements are interconnected and how they intersect and how they were kind of in conversation with one another across the centuries. Uh, that's why every chapter, like it starts with something pretty far back and then there's something a little more recent and then there's something more that's happening right now or happened in the past couple of years because it was such a goal to show that you know not only have these workers and these organizers and revolutionaries been struggling for centuries like the same people are still doing the same work and in a lot of cases are still fighting the same problems like the same conditions that you know the Italian and Eastern European Jewish women who were part of the uprising of the 20,000 in 1909, the, you know, the dust and the lack of ventilation, the locked doors, the sexual harassment, the low pay, there are garment workers in Los Angeles who are now Asian and Latino immigrants who are dealing with very similar situations. Like everything old is new again. We're in this new gilded age. We're, we're at this point where we have made so much progress, but there's so much that needs to be done and it seems like workers, the people who make the world run, are just consistently left as an afterthought in the pursuit of profit and in, you know, <laughs> the accrual of capital that still continues to run our daily lives. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, from my perspective, that's absolutely right, Kim, but I'll take it a step further. Not only, you know, progress has been made, but progress was really only made for a certain group of people. The people who were able to achieve, you know, middle class success. And then, you know, the, the story that everyone knows is that you could be working class and middle class in America for a while in the 50s with the good union jobs, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And then the story goes, you know, Reagan comes along in the 80s and that's gone. And now, you know, working class and lower class are the same thing. But it's worse than that because the, the progress that was made on behalf of these professionals, if you look around, professionals are becoming working class jobs, you know, professor, professional jobs are becoming more like gig 
work. And so it, mm. it, it seems to me that the progress could e evaporate. And I'm going to lay that evaporation on the fact that professionals have historically considered themselves sort of above unionizing, above organizing. Doctors don't need a union because they are the boss. But now doctors are not the boss anymore. They're answering to these uh, hospital systems. And yeah, some of them like cardiologists do great, but regular old general practitioners are having their time cut, their money cut, their, a bit, their autonomy cut. They're, they're living the life of the working class still with a good salary, but don't worry. The corporate capitalists will come for the good salary for the doctors also. <laughs> And if you can't imagine the need for solidarity with everyone up and down, you will not get the point of labor unions. If you think that unions are for, you know, people in a factory, you, you are missing what unions are. Yeah, um, there's always this weird discourse whenever a new group of workers, whether it's graduate students or video game workers or, you know, the strippers on strike in North Hollywood right now, there's this weird pushback against who who a union member is, who it should be, and who deserves a union. And a lot of it does come down to that sort of artificial white collar slash blue collar divide. A lot of it comes down to people not having access to this history and not knowing necessarily what a union is and what it does and how it can benefit any kind of worker, whether you're, I mean, I'm sure if all the doctors at a hospital came together and organized, they could do something about those schedules. They could do something about the control that hospital administrators have over their working conditions. Like, really separating workers by job title or by whether they work inside or outside or wherever they came from, like all these divisions, like that's, that's doing the boss's work for him. And that's the last thing we want to do. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and even the fact that, and those who understand this and understand that those divisions are bullshit, like that's how we make things happen. Like the fact that the UAW, United Auto Workers, right now, like this storied industrial union, Detroit, Rust Belt, every possible, you know, watchword for what the white working class allegedly is and has been, they're like 25% of their members now, 100,000 people work in education. They're graduate student workers. They're in this kind of education space and they're members of the UAW. And I think that's wonderful because it shows like, that work evolves and labor evolves and unions have to evolve to stay relevant because we this the, the craft guild model that propelled the movement for a very long time that i mean that left people out the whole time like that didn't that didn't do as well as it should have the whole time but now it just seems like the only way to effectively organize and effectively build power is to do so in it with an industrial viewpoint and to be breaking down these artificial barriers that separate worker from worker and pit us against one another. Like, why wouldn't I have solidarity with a coal miner just as much as I have solidarity with an adjunct professor at NYU? Like, we're all getting screwed, right? <laughs> and recognizing that is how we get close to that common ground that enables us to build meaningful connections and solidarity. Yeah, I do think that exploitation is, is the heart of it. And it does seem that if you can see a path for exploitation out of yourself, for yourself, or for the group you belong to, it's easy to think that unions do not have anything to offer to you. I guess the other thing, this is an old cliche, but I will say it anyway. So much of what people take for granted in terms of uh, the work week and health insurance and all these things were won by unions in the first place. So I, mm -hmm. I know you've seen this. If you have 
any familiarity with left-wing politics at all. You've seen this on Facebook or Instagram, but I will say it anyway. Whatever it is that is tolerable about your workplace, unions did win that. And it doesn't matter if you are uh, in a union or even in an industry that was traditionally unionized. You owe that to the unions fighting exploitation, really, as you say, in the gilded and progressive ages. Yeah, and I mean, it's not, and unions, it's always important too to remember that unions are people unions are the workers the workers did that the unions are just institutions that they built to hopefully and ideally serve their needs i think there's a little bit of a especially like in lefty spaces where i'm i've also spent basically my whole adult life like there's this idea that unions are these like evil top-down hierarchical institutions that don't actually care about workers and I mean, as, I, as you see in my book, as you see in, in real time, like not all unions are the same, not all union leaders are the same, and not all union leaders are on our side, right? I mean, there's a thing, even with the, like, for example, the United Mine Workers of America, one of, one of my faves, uh, there's a very high profile and really horrifying incident in, oh, what was it, maybe the 70s? I'm going to fudge the date, but uh, <laughs> well, before I was born, there was this whole like massive horrifying situation where like uh, insurgent, like reform minded candidate, Jack Yablonski was trying to run for a high office and he was murdered because all the corrupt officials above him were like, oh, we can't be having that. Like talk about Jimmy Hoffa, talk about union corruption, talk about all of these negative aspects of the of institutions and leaders like yeah like i think it's perfectly reasonable to criticize institutions and unions and try and make them better but i think it's important too to keep focus on the people that make them go and the reason they exist like the workers themselves like it was workers fighting and striking and shutting down the music production and risking their lives that got us that well got some of us the eight hour day and the campaign against child labor and the weekend, all of these things that are easy to <laughs> condense into a Facebook meme. Like people did that though. People fought and died for that. And those are the people I wanted to elevate in the book. Like I don't really care about what union leaders get up to unless they're doing something good. I'm more interested in what the rank and file and what outliers and what people that weren't even invited into the labor movement as it's established in like a more formal way until past the 60s or even now there are people who are left out. Like I guess the, it's the, the people, it's always the people that I'm interested in, the people that didn't get a chance to ascend to the powerful ranks, you know, like what they were doing, because ultimately what they were doing is the most impactful and most important. Yeah. And there's, there's this history, there's this understanding of unions, which to me, I mean, is just loathsome that unions are the things that have been recognized by the government and the and the corporation, right? It's not a union until it's an it's to, it's an official union, and obviously there's 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 reasons for that. But if you IWW the book, have something to say about that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The I mean, look, the Wobblies. I love I love the Wobblies. I'm definitely gonna do an entire episode on the Wobblies fa- fairly soon. I did record an episode that hasn't released yet about Lucy Parsons. Yeah, mm-hmm. like. Um, this is the tradition often called anarcho-syndicalism of like, yeah, the problem with unions is that they think too small, not, not that they've grown too big, but they're thinking uh, too small in terms of they're thinking like, oh, let's unionize in this one company or this one industry. And this is where anarchism and union comes together, which is, hey, like, 
the people are in charge. The people are always in charge. And all the people have to do is recognize that they are in charge and they are in charge. And uh, the, the reason why we've left the heyday of the unions and the reason why we're seeing some of it in some places like Amazon is it, it's easiest to unionize when the people have already been organized. So when the capitalist puts a bunch of people in a building together and they're there for hours and hours, it's a lot easier to get unionized than if you're, say, an, an Uber driver. But we've got to be able to think beyond this, like, okay, we're already kind of the same, so let's team up to something bigger and more solidarity-based. And your book absolutely shows that over and over again. Oh, that's the point. And also, in fairness, like, our labor laws shut a lot of people out, too. And that's kind of a big hurdle that, you know, some people could probably do something about. They have, <laughs> like, maybe people with lots of time and money and power, perhaps. But, <laughs> but that's the thing, too, right? Like, our labor laws have never included everybody. There are entire groups that were explicitly carved out. Uh, I mean, even the one of our big ones, the National Labor Relations Act, 1935, that's that's a big one. That's an important one. That's still relevant now. But they're like entire groups of workers were carved out because racist Southern lawmakers didn't want to give black workers too many rights, like domestic workers, agricultural workers. They're shut out of like probably our preeminent labor rights law. And they still are like that's yeah. still a situation. And, you know, at that point, it was black workers being excluded. And now like that hurts other types of workers, like Latino workers, Asian workers, immigrant workers in general. Like there's always been someone left out of these legal means and like these uh, more mainstream steps toward progress. But workers have always organized anyway, right? They've been like, well, you guys are not gonna help us. So we're gonna do our own <laughs> thing. Like that's where we have the IWW, sure. But we also have, you know, coalition of monthly workers and worker centers in general. We have these kind of hybrid, like community worker-led organizations like um even in recent times the haymarket pole collective in portland a group of black uh, indigenous and trans sex workers who've organized themselves it's it's a labor organization but it's also a nonprofit. it's also a community organization like they I, I interviewed one of their founders for the book and they told me you know i'm suspicious of this of the idea of unionizing of organized labor because unions are led by majority rule and what happens to those of us who have always been the minority? What happens mm -hmm. to those of us who don't have as much power? I thought that was a really powerful thing for them to say. So it's, yeah, they're, yeah, right in the book, one of my favorite things was just seeing the many ways that workers have organized in spite of the movement or in spite of the labor laws and forced real change anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really liked in um, one of the unions, I think it might have been the air traffic controller union in your book. I don't They've all jumbled together. Sorry, but there was one union there's that says, there's, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no illegal strike, and uh, except there are simply unsuccessful strikes. And I just oh my want... god, Sarah Nelson says that all the okay, time. Yeah, She's the best. <laughs> and look, this is. I just want to point out from a historical standpoint, this is true of of everything. There's no, there's no illegal anything. There's just. I mean, this is the anarchism coming out, right? But like, if you, if you uh, grab the power for your yourself and you are allowed to do it, then it is becomes the law of the land. That's how we get right wing dictators. But that's also how we get uh, unions in states that it is illegal to unionize. I've been a state employee a few times in the state of North Carolina. In the state of South Carolina, where unions are illegal, and I would sometimes say, 
like, hey guys, why don't we just unionize anyway? Are they gonna put a bunch of teachers in jail? But no one, no one was willing, no one was willing to think that way. And they're all like, oh, we well, gotta... have to file for the NLRB <laughs> yeah, election. Exactly. You don't have to do exactly. all that. You don't have to do all that yeah. stuff. You can. It's great. It's great to have a legal contract. But like a union is a group of workers that organize themselves for a purpose and like for a collective goal. Like that's all you don't need any paperwork to be a union. Absolutely. And, that's the thing. and even and you don't need any official federal paperwork to be recognized to go out on strike, especially yeah. if you're not supposed to. I mean, tell that to the Red for Ed movement workers, teachers, education workers across the South. That was what was it? 20 it was a couple of years ago. But yeah, like wildcat <laughs> strikes. Yeah, we um, let's just say I was a teacher during that time. And mm. uh, there was, you know, there was nothing happened at the school I was at, let's say mm. there was a there was a culture of fear and intimidation there. And, you know, that's why there's a culture of fear and intimidation, because we are not organized. People have the order reversed. People think, oh, this is scary. The leadership is mean. Unions are illegal. Therefore, we can't do anything about it. But it's in fact the other way. It's because you're not doing anything about it that you are that you are shut out and everything you want to do seems impossible. And again, the book is filled with people who, yeah, had no affiliation with any of the big unions and were just like, this is wrong. And mm-hmm. I and my friends, or sometimes just I, am going to stand up and do something about it. And I'm sure there's many times where that has, you know, failed in every way possible. But your book shows there are dozens of times, relatively easy to find times that one or a few people did something big, but it's just not, in in 2022, that's not a way people think in the workplace, or maybe that is changing. Obviously we're seeing Amazon, Starbucks, teachers, maybe this idea is changing and I, I sure hope it is. Yeah, there's, I mean, sometimes demanding the impossible works. And that's definitely something we can't discount. <laughs> I mean, I know what podcast I'm on. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, if you're not, if you're not demanding the impossible, what what are you What's demanding? The point? Yes, you have. I mean, that's the entire history of the labor movement, right? Like back when I mean, back in the 1800s, when so-called mill girls in North, in New England were striking and fighting for this, you know, this absolutely inconceivable demand of a 10-hour workday. Like that seemed impossible. And now, you know, it, it took a while, but now it's, it's, you know, that seems awful. Like, oh, you're working 10 hours. That's, that's un- impossible. But yeah. If, if, if workers hadn't demanded the impossible back in the 1800s and 1900s and, you know, continue to do it now, we wouldn't have gotten anything. What the idea of the idea of anything being impossible is just sort of like, it's kind of giving up in advance, isn't it? Right. Oh. Like absolutely letting them win you can't let the bastards win (laughs) and look and you if you look out i I just had the political philosopher Corey robin on the show and we talked about the the famous quote probably from carl rove where he said you know you you guys you pointy-headed intellectuals um are just studying the world as it exists we're an empire we are making the world and all of my colleagues were like yeah he's horrible that's wrong but i was like no he's right the right wing is out there making a world that seemed impossible in 1966 mm. they they've created it 
And if we sit back and say like, well, I mean, okay, but unions are illegal. They don't give a shit what's illegal. The right wing doesn't give a shit what's illegal at all. Or if they win, they retroactively make it legal. We see it over and over again. So if they are dreaming of a different world and we are not, they have already won. And we're not invited of a, to theirs. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, we're not invited to theirs. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. They, we're, we're not invited to theirs. And that is the one that we are living in. Again, we're living in that one. And it is time to stop letting their dreams be our reality. And yeah. your book is filled with, with people's dreams that became reality. Yeah. And even right now, we're in the midst of this historic moment with this you know, and there, there have been a lot of historic moments where a whole lot of workers organize and go on strike and start advocating for themselves. That's, you know, that, that happens every few generations. And right now we're in this moment where it's happening again in a very public way, in a very online way, in a very visible way. And I think that is one of the most important aspects, the fact that this is all playing out very much in public in a way that makes it easy for folks to support it. And the, even just talking about Amazon and Starbucks, like those are two mammoth behemoth corporations that basically everybody knows about. Everyone knows about Amazon, everyone knows about Starbucks. And just to see these workers who are overwhelmingly younger, they're black, they're brown, they're queer, they're trans, they're coming from these marginalized backgrounds and they're standing up against these sort of digital Goliaths and they're winning and the movement's spreading. And I think that people are seeing that and taking hope from that. I mean, last time I was in Alabama to visit uh, some of the coal miners that are still on strike down there, this is month 13, they were telling me how excited they were to see folks at Amazon and Starbucks organizing. Like one of the Amazon organizers I had lunch with down there was telling me, he's like, oh, maybe I'll pick up a side job at Starbucks and help them unionize. Like people everywhere are paying attention, even, you know, even if somehow the laws and the lords of capital are able to crush these two efforts, which I don't, I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle, but even if somehow they do, like they can't take away the fact that so many people have seen what these workers are doing and taking inspiration from that and led them to go home and think, huh, if these kids can take on Starbucks and take on Amazon, maybe I can talk to my coworker about pay disparities. Maybe I can sit down with my boss. Maybe I can circulate a petition. Like maybe I can do something too. That is something that they cannot take away from us. First of all, yes. And then all I will say next is that I have taught, you know, U.S. history in an American high school that this is U.S. history. Your book is U.S. history. It's Mm -hmm. written in a way that any high school student can read. Besides, I I only put a couple swears in it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's uh, well, believe me. I mean, you know, they they still read Huck Finn in plenty of high schools. So uh, you're 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 okay in terms of swears. Um, This I mean, okay, this is this is a a book that is as easy to read as the average high school textbook. I mean, or I would say much easier. And as you're talking about this moment where people can look around and say, hey, it's happening right now. Yes. Draw. I would tell people draw strength from that. But we also need to give people the history so they can draw strength from the past. And I want to see this book. Uh, a lot of high schools, you know, in, in the right places have something like uh, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. And I think this book could go right, right in there, right next to People's History, right next to the stuff from the 1619 Project. And to me, this is right now in this moment, the stories in your book are the most vital. You've, you've got... You've, you've shown the importance of intersectionality 
to this union movement that is the, the source of most of what is good in the world, but has this critical problem that we have forgotten the history and we view the history of unionism as the history of, you know, white guys and hard hats, white guys and hard hats. Yeah. I was trying to come up with the correct uh, metaphor, white guys and hard hats. So yeah. get, this like book, there, get this book like, in the classroom. I would love that so much. Like, ah, oh, that'd be my favorite thing ever. If more young people would read it. Cause it's, and I think I, I've sort of trained myself to approach writing in that way. Cause I write for teen Vogue and I've, I've written for mainstream audiences for a long time. Like I, I know that they're, it's funny because I spent most of my life in the music industry, right? And specifically writing about heavy metal. And there is a way that you write about heavy metal for mainstream audiences. And there's a way that you write about it for insiders. And those two ways are pretty different. <laughs> and after I trained myself to do that in my career in the metal world, once I started writing about labor, I kind of took that same approach. Like, okay, you got to write about it in a way that regular people will pick it up and be like, oh, this is cool. This is interesting. You got to explain stuff. You got to never talk down to anyone, but just there, there's like a specific way that you can write that makes everyone, like anyone will feel like, okay, this is geared towards me. Like this is, they're not throwing like billion dollar SAT words at me. Like they're not getting stuck in jargon. And like, there's a lot of writing, whether it's academic, whether it's like very labor specific, that is great and super informative, deeply researched and not a lot of fun to read. And so maybe people won't necessarily read it. Like I read a lot of labor books to when I was researching this and um, some of them were more fun than others, I will say. And the ones that were more fun were the ones I spent the most time with. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, and I'm not like, I'm just like some dirtbag from Jersey. Like I don't have shining credentials. I've just spent a whole lot of time working and talking to workers and reading about this stuff and researching this stuff. Like I know what I'm talking about. I just don't necessarily come at it from any sort of uh, <laughs> gilded background or sterling <laughs> academic record and well, that look, probably helps a little bit too yeah you're on the right podcast for this also my my d- despite my credentials my disdain for the credentialing system uh, knows knows no bounds i mean speaking as an insider in fact when i first brought in guests that was all i could think to bring in was academics to criticize the academic system because i was so desperate to get the to get the word out i've since i've since branched out but it was like please people who don't know what happens at colleges and universities, it's not a magic place where you go in and then you emerge incredibly smart and wise and a valuable member to society. Think of any institution you've ever been a part of. It's probably not like that. Why would the university of whatever, or even someplace like Harvard be like that as well? Stop, stop giving people uh, credit based on where they've been. Start giving them credit for what they've done and what you've done is written a really cool book kim thank you i really appreciate that i tried to make it fun and i tried to make it i I tried to write a book that i would want to read and i think i accomplished that and a lot of like just like there have been nice reviews and nice press stuff and that's wonderful but my favorite thing is when just people will like tweet at me or message me email me say hey i really like this hey i saw myself in this like that's what I wanted. Like, yeah, it's sick to do media stuff and to sell books and hopefully trick people into let me do another one. But <laughs> I just wanted to, to, I don't know. I wanted people to, to read their stories and feel empowered. Like I wanted to write a book that anybody, no matter who they are, where they come from, where they work, could pick it up and see something of themselves in the pages and then use that as inspiration to do something. 
right? Like we say that representation matters and it does. And that's a, a very complicated, thorny uh, phrase <laughs> yeah. that I'm not smart enough to get into. But yeah, let's not, that, let's not talk about representation matters because no. that's true and not true and everything. We're both and, way yeah, too oh boy. to be trying to do all that. <laughs> but I'm just, but just the idea of showing people like, look, like the labor movement is bigger than just guys who look like my dad. People like you have been part of it the entire time and done some really incredible things. And you should be proud of that. And you should take that and do something with it, right? Like this history is yours. This movement is yours. Now, what are you going to do? I think think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you. This was awesome. Hell yeah. Okay, well, if you enjoyed that conversation, the book is on shelves right now. I should also have a link to it in the show notes. That's it for me today, except reminding you that you can find me at everydayanarchism.com if you would like to get in touch or make a financial contribution to the show. You can also help the show out by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just telling a friend. The music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.